passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Last week, we began a new series called Vision. It's a really short four-week series where Pastor Jordan and I are sharing with you what is the elders' five-year vision for Crosswinds and for the future. Uh, the details of what those, that vision is is actually in your uh, sermon handouts there. It's a seven-point vision. I'm not going to take the time to reread it like I did last week. I'm just going to point you to that. Um, the elders believe that it, think we can focus on these seven areas for the next five years. It will really help us achieve our mission, which is reaching people with Jesus. It will help us live out our core values. And I went over three of those core values last week, and I'd refer you to the web link that is in the handout there to read all seven of our core values in your own time at but last week, we looked at what is the first of those seven points. And the reason I took one week, an entire week, to look at the first point is because that point is so incredibly important. Really, all the other points that the elders want to focus on for the next five years flow out of that first point. If you have your outlines, go ahead and take them out. And I'm going to read for you what is the first point. I put it right on the top of the sermon handout. It's this. It's we are tirelessly focused on reaching people with Jesus, willing to leave the 99 for the one. And last week, to help us better understand what is behind this and the scriptural backing to this, we went to Luke chapter 15. Remember, we looked at what is truly one of Jesus' greatest parables. It is no doubt his longest parable. It is the only triple parable out there. And it's one parable made up of three stories that all say the same thing, just in slightly different ways. It was the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each one of them is telling us that our God loves lost people. And there is more joy in heaven. God gets more joy when one lost person repents than 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And the point is this. If God is filled with such joy when the lost people are found... We have to adopt what is truly God's value. We have to think God's thoughts after him. We have to have real joy when lost people are found and not just focus on the 99 who do not need to repent. So, uh, this is what the elders are really calling us to do in this point. For the next five years, we are going to try as a church to really focus on reaching the lost in our community around us. We don't want to be a church that just focuses on the inside and ministering to one another, but we want to be like Jesus wants us to be, hold the values that God values. We want to care about the lost in this world around us. Folks, realize, as I said last week, you are not in this community for a random reason. 
Just as we support missionaries to the tune of almost $100,000 a year out of this church to share the gospel around the world, God has you here in Spirit Lake, or he has some people in Spencer as missionaries in our community. We are here to reach the lost and tell them the good news of Jesus, apart from which there is no way to be saved. Well, where do we go from here? Because that is the point we looked at last week. What I'd like to do for today, and then we'll do for the next two weeks after this, is we'll see how the following points build off of this initial point. Today, we're going to look at points two and six of the elders' vision. Those points all have to do with change. Why do we want to be a church that embraces change for the express purpose of reaching those who are far from Christ. Not just embracing change for fad reasons or to be hip or to be cool, but embracing change to reach the lost. Then next week, we'll look at points three, four, and five, which all have to do with loving our neighbor, how we can better love our neighbors to reach the lost. Then in the final week, we'll come and look at just point seven, which is how seriously are we going to take this as a church body? Is this going to be something that is, I get up here and do a little talking head thing and we move on to the next sermon series and forget it all? Or are we actually going to put some teeth into it and create traction and make changes to actually reach people who need to meet Jesus? So that's what's going to be going on. So I said today we're going to look at points 2 and point 6. I'm going to just introduce them to you in sort of reverse order. Look at point 6 and point 2. And then explain them, and then we'll teach you the biblical background behind them. Why these things are biblical truths, not just things that are coming from your elders. Point 6 is we change and give up what we like for the sake of others. And we want to be known as a church that embraces change. So this is all about change. Giving up what we like for the sake of others. In particular, embracing change for the reason of reaching lost people who need Jesus Christ. We want to be known as a church who's willing to give up things things that I would say are even meaningful to us, things that are special to us, but we would give up those things for the express purpose of being able to better reach lost people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice. Giving up to reach others. Now, by the way, we're not going to give up the gospel. No. We're not going to give up putting our finger in the text. Those are irreplaceable truths. Those things will not change. But we want to be known as a church that's willing to give up our traditions, willing to give up our preferences, must be willing to give up the anything, give up anything that hinders us from effectively reaching our community with Jesus. Folks, the honest truth is that many times our preferences, our traditions, while not wrong in and of themselves, 
can become barriers to us effectively reaching the lost in the community around us. I'll give you a fun example so you can see what I mean. Let's go back in time to the early 1990s. Yes, I was alive back then, and I was a pastor back then. In the early 90s, when I began in ministry, pastors were always to wear suits on Sunday. In fact, if you had grown up in the church, you wore a suit on Sunday. You had to wear that suit on Sunday. He knows. He was alive in the 90s, too. Well, and, that, and that's all well and good, folks. And I don't, never, don't have a problem wearing a suit. I don't have a problem wearing a pair of jeans. It really doesn't make a difference to me. But I'm going to tell you what the battle was that was going on at that time. There was a number of people who were just really irritated when some people weren't wearing suits to church. And don't you dare wear a pair of blue jeans to church. But in the community where I pastored, there was a number of blue-collar people who did not even own a suit. I would invite them to church, and they'd say, I cannot come to your church because I don't have a suit, and I'm not going to go out and buy a suit just so I can go to church. Now that tradition, the idea that the older people were saying you should wear a suit because you want to give God your best and look your best for Jesus, it's not wrong. But what he was doing was hindering the spread of the gospel. When lost people couldn't feel comfortable coming into God's house to hear about Jesus, something is wrong, drastically wrong. The church needed to change. This is the kind of stuff the elders are talking about. We have to be focused on reaching people with Jesus. That is far more valuable that people come to Christ than anything else. God gets more joy over one jean-wearing sinner who repents than 99 suit-wearing Christians who do not need to repent. That's the honest truth. Now, the other thing about this, we want to be a church that doesn't just begrudgingly embrace change. We want to be a church that joyfully embraces change. Because you know, it's not just that you change, but it's often the attitude that goes with when you change. Some people can change kicking and screaming and griping and groaning. And other people change because, hey, I'm doing this for a reason. I can see the reason why we want to change. And I want to make the change. Even if it's uncomfortable for me, I know it's the thing that's pleasing God. That's why we're doing it. So we want to be a church that changes with the times to aggressively reach the lost, but do it with a good attitude as we do. The other point is this. We have made space for new people to serve and to lead. We don't want to be a church that as we grow older, the only people who are in leadership and control is that inner clique of people who have been here for years. That's wrong. We want to intentionally make space for new people in the church that God is raising up to serve and to lead and young people in the church. So they have an opportunity to serve and to lead. This is what Paul did. Remember this from our study in 2 Timothy? 
It says, and what you have heard from me, Paul said, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, you want to raise up the next generation of leaders and empower them to lead. And when you, a church sort of stays in that inner group where it's the same people doing the leadership for decades on end, it is not healthy. In fact, look what Paul did. He raised up younger men and gave them real leadership opportunity. Like, remember Timothy? That's one of them. Remember Titus? That's another one. And by the way, he didn't just, like, here's the leadership ball, hope you make it. He mentored them. He helped them. He even wrote letters that are in our Bible to coach them along the way. So the point is, what we do is we don't try and tear younger leaders down. We want to go out of our way to build younger leaders up and help them fly well and help them succeed. Now, these points that I just read to you, point two and six, they, they sound like really good stuff. But the question becomes, is, is there any biblical basis behind this? Is there biblical backing to this? Um, I just want to tell you there is great biblical backing to this. I'm going to show you one particular part of Scripture that just supports these ideas in spades. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 19 through 24. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to that section of the Scripture. Then stand out of reverence for God's Word. Actually, it's 19 through 23. I'm going to read that section, and then we'll go ahead and teach on it. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, that is, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. Now these verses are all about evangelism. They're all about Paul being willing to give up his rights, willing to give up his freedoms, sacrifice those things. So when he goes into a culture with people who are lost, he can more effectively tell them about Jesus. Before we get into these verses, let me just give a little uh, on-ramp to that. And whenever we think about evangelism, Whenever we think about reaching the lost, we all have to agree that Paul is, without doubt, one of the most effective evangelists to ever walk the planet. 
And if we are going to be about reaching people with Jesus, it's probably wise for us to think about what made Paul so effective at reaching people with Jesus. And I put together just a little short set of points to lead up to the point we're going to study this morning. And here are the points of what made Paul so effective at sharing Jesus. Number one, he had the right message. I mean, if you're going to be effective at sharing the good news of the gospel, you have to begin by actually knowing the good news of the gospel. True? That's like step one. And just so you know, the good news of the gospel is not that we earn brownie points with God by our behavior. The good news of the gospel, there is nothing to do we can save ourselves. God sent his son because he loves you. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. All you can do is receive it and by faith trust it. Now, does it matter how we live after that? Well, yes, it does. But we do not live holy lives to gain salvation. We live holy lives out of gratitude to God for giving us our salvation. That is the gospel. If you can understand that distinction, then you can begin to preach it. And Paul understood it, and he preached it well. Number two, Paul was so effective because he had a compelling motive. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now I'll tell you right up front that this is not one of my favorite translations of this verse. Paul here talks about the fact that as Christians, all of us will one day stand before Jesus. We will be judged by Jesus. We will be rewarded by Jesus. And then he ends it by saying here, whether good or evil. Now, here's the challenge with that translation. It sounds like I'm going to be judged for my sin. But you didn't just tell me in the last point that Jesus has forgiven all my sin. I'm confused here what to do with this. The Greek, I like the Greek because it gives us a little bit more precision. We understand the field of meaning of the words. This really unlocks the key here. That's why I don't like the translation will be judged based on what we have done with our faith, whether it is, here's the Greek, valuable or valueless. What we have done with our faith will end up resulting in us being rewarded by Jesus. Did we do things valuable for the kingdom? Sharing the gospel, growing Christ's church, making a difference in God, people's lives? That's valuable. Or did we spend our life on valueless things? Living for ourselves, not caring for others, not serving Christ in his church, not sharing the gospel. That is what this reward is about. Now, Paul knows. He knows what Jesus said and the stuff we studied last week. He knows that what brings God more joy than anything else is when a lost sinner repents not the 99 righteous who do not need to repent. So what is Paul doing with his life? 
pouring it into sharing the gospel with other people, doing whatever he can to share the good news and people are born again. Because he knows on that day, he will be richly rewarded by Christ for doing what is obviously one of the most valuable things you can for the glory of Christ, sharing the gospel. So if we're going to be effective, we have to also have the right motivation, knowing that sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel with the lost is one of the most effective ways we can end up rewarded in eternity. Number three, he had a good plan. Now this may be something that a number of you know about, but also some of you may not know about, is that Paul actually had a plan for when it came to sharing the gospel. He didn't just do it randomly. We see it when he, in the book of Acts, he would always go to places where the gospel had not been preached before, sort of virgin territory. His plan was to start in the synagogues. There he shared the gospel. If he was kicked out of the synagogues, he went to the Gentiles in the community, shared the gospel with them. When a group rose up, there was the church. He let the church go, then he went off to the next town. Once again, to a place he would never heard the gospel before, and he just kept repeating that plan. My simple observation is, if we're going to be effective at sharing Jesus in our community, we actually have to make a plan to do it and how to do it. You know, some people who work in business, you know that you can talk about things all day long, but until you make a plan to get the job done, nothing is going to happen. The same thing is going to be true for us. If we're going to actually reach lost people, we're going to, as a church, have to make a plan, have to make steps, and have to execute on those things to get those things done. Now this brings us to point D, which is our fourth point, which leads us into what we're going to focus on today. Paul was willing to sacrifice almost anything to better communicate the good news of Jesus. Paul would set aside any preference, any tradition, any freedom he had if it would help him communicate the gospel better to the people in the community he was trying to reach. Folks, this is incredibly key for us. If Paul was willing to give up his freedoms in Christ and his preferences to reach lost people, we must also be willing to give up our traditions, our freedoms, our preferences to reach lost people for Jesus Christ. And this is where our text picks up. To be able to understand this text, I need to briefly tell you what preceded it. In chapter 8, it was a discussion of meat sacrificed to idols. And some of you may remember that if you've read through the Corinthians letters. What happened is you have the Corinthian Christians realizing, hey, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's just meat. An idol is nothing. It's cheaper to buy at the meat market. Who cares? I'm free in Christ. You know, my food doesn't actually affect my faith. This is great. I can do what I want. But then Paul says, you are free in Christ. Eat meat sacrificed to idols. But here's the other problem. There are these new Christians among you, the baby Christians among you who just came out of idolatry, 
who just came out of pagan worship, and they see you eating that meat, they're not mature in Christ yet. They're confused, and, and, and they're sort of hurt, and they're trying to figure it all out. Your freedom in Christ is hurting them. And from that illustration, Paul develops a timeless principle that he gave to us, which is why we are free in Christ and can do things in many different ways. We must not let our freedom hurt others' faith, especially those who are less mature than us. And then when we get into our passage, what Paul is doing is expanding this principle. While we are free to live any way we want in Christ, we're not bound by traditions, we're not bound by ceremonies, we must be willing to give up those freedoms and give up those preferences, not just for the sake of keeping to wound a weaker brother, but give those things up so we can more effectively reach people with Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Paul says as he starts in verse 19? For though I am free from all, <laughs> my relationship with God is about Jesus Christ, nothing else. I can do whatever I want. I don't act that way. I've actually made myself a servant to all. I've stopped using my freedoms. Why? That I might win more of them. That I may share the gospel more effectively with them. Paul didn't need to observe the Old Testament law. He didn't need to keep up with special Jewish holidays. He had all those freedoms in Christ. But he, if those things, like not observing Jewish holidays, not observing Sabbaths, would hinder his gospel effectiveness among the Jews, he chose to limit his freedoms. Now, what Paul is doing is he's not changing what are clear biblical items. You know, he's not talking about sinning. What he's talking about is traditions. What he's talking is about preferences. And there are two ways, by the way, that he's going to get into this. First, he's going to talk about self-denial, which is the section that we read. And then he'll talk about the importance of self-discipline in sharing the gospel. When I wrote this uh, during the week, I wrote both of these, self-denial and self-discipline. Guys, I decided last night I'm going to cut it and just do the self-denial one this morning because I think we'll have more than enough to talk about with that. But when you do your life group questions, you'll get a chance to look at the next one. So here we are. I must be willing to deny my preferences to effectively share the gospel. Beginning in verse 19, as we just looked at, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul is free, as I said, from Old Testament regulations. He does not have to follow Old Testament laws. The Old Testament said you could not eat pork, but Paul loves to eat bacon, and he can get away from it with Jesus. The Old Testament law said you could not eat shellfish, but Paul knows he's free to eat shrimp and lobster. And he loves both of them. The Old Testament law said you could not wear any clothing woven with two different fabrics. But Paul has discovered this new thing called the pot cotton polyester blend. And he likes it. And he knows that in Christ he is free to wear it. But, he says, instead of exercising my freedoms, 
I have made myself a servant to all. I have stopped using my freedoms. This is very strong wording here. Whatever I have to do to not have my freedoms be a barrier to you, I will do that, Paul says, so I can more effectively tell you about Jesus Christ. How far does this go? And we're going to have some fun as we look at how far this goes. 2 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. He says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And then notice this. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, if I need to go to jail, if I need to spend time in prison to more effectively share the gospel with people, I am willing to do it. Because Jesus is far more important. Look at the contrast. The Corinthians are going, hey, I'm free in Christ. I can do anything I want. I don't care how it wounds my weaker brother. I don't care how it diminishes my effectiveness as I share the gospel with others. I'm free in Christ. I can do anything. Contrasted with Paul, who says, I may be free in Christ, but I'm limiting all those freedoms so I can more effectively reach the culture I am trying to reach with Jesus. Because Jesus and sharing him with you is far more important than any freedoms I have in Christ. Now in verse 20 and following, what happened is a litany of lists of the way that Paul has curtailed his freedoms to effectively reach people. Paul accommodated, for instance, the Jewish culture to reach the Jews. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not myself being under the law, I don't have to do this. I did it that I might win those who are under the law. So Paul is constantly trying to reach his Jewish brothers with the good news of Jesus. Doesn't have to adopt the ceremonial law. Doesn't have to adopt the Jewish food laws. Doesn't have to adopt the Jewish Sabbaths. But when he's with the Jewish people, he adopts the Jewish culture so we can more effectively share the gospel with Jewish people. To illustrate how this is seen in other parts of Scripture, let me just take you over to Acts chapter 15. Some of you may know that portion of Scripture off the top of your head. That is known as the Jerusalem Council. The situation that happened was something unexpected was taking place. Gentiles were coming to Christ. Gentiles were being born again. They were speaking in tongues. Clearly the Holy Spirit was coming on Gentile people, not just Jewish people. And people didn't know what to do. There was a split. Some people said, ah, look, these Gentiles have now uh, been born again. They have to become Jewish just like Jesus. These Gentile people should start adopting Jewish traditions and Jewish ceremonies and Jewish customs. And then other people said, wait a minute, God obviously accepted them without adopting Jewish ceremonies and customs. 
So why should we make them adopt Jewish ceremonies and customs? And in particular was the discussion of circumcision. Gentile men were not circumcised. Jewish men were. And so the guys who were in favor of these new Gentiles becoming Jewish culture said, you guys also have to be circumcised now. And they looked at him and said, you are not getting a sharp object next to that part of my body. No way. Jesus accepted me before I was circumcised. I don't need to get circumcised. And I, hey, I get it. That makes sense to me, right? So this is a big issue. And so what the, you know, the disciples meet in Jerusalem, and then they come down with what is this, um, this, what do you call it? Judgment of the Jerusalem Council. Let me read to you what it is. James says this, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles to turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. James says, <laughs> the simple summary is this, Gentiles were accepted by God before they adopted Jew Jewish culture. Therefore, we must not make them adopt and follow Jewish culture. But, he says, there are four things we would like you to observe. Why does he illustrate these four things? Let's look at the first one. To abstain from food sacrificed to idols. This is the issue we just looked at in the Corinthian letters. Can the Gentiles eat food sacrificed to idols? Technically, you can do that. Because food does not affect faith, right? But Paul did say, maybe you want to curtail that freedom because it would affect a weaker brother. The other thing we have to realize is the Jewish people abhorred idolatry. They couldn't stand idolatry. And if they saw people eating meat sacrificed to idols, they assumed that that person was therefore endorsing idolatry. And so what James says is to these Gentiles, even though they have the freedom to eat food, sacrificed idols, don't do it because it will become a barrier to sharing the gospel with Jewish people. You see how this is cultural accommodation? Now the second thing he says is to abstain from sexual immorality. This is not a cultural accommodation. All over scripture it's abundantly clear that sex is to be saved for marriage and marriage alone. The third point is this, stay away from things that are strangled. Well that's a strange one. You need to know a little tradition. At this point in the meat market there was a tradition they would strangle animals and then sell them in the meat market. It was a lot easier that way. There was no blood all over the place. You know, it was sort of neat and clean. You could just get your dead animal. But to Jews, it didn't work that way. If you know the Jewish law, you were not to eat blood. In fact, when an animal was killed, the blood was to be drained on the ground. A little messier, but that's Jewish law. Here James says, don't eat the strangled animals. Because when the Jewish people who do not know Christ see you eating strangled animals with the blood in it, 
it'll put a barrier between you and them, and you will not be able to effectively share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. You see how this is cultural accommodation? Now, are they free to do it? Yes, food doesn't affect faith, but to share the gospel effectively, they shouldn't do it. The other thing it says is to stay away from blood. Now, by the way, just so you know, the Gentiles in this time, they would drink blood. This is my one Halloween reference, by the way, for the day. They would drink blood. That was just part of their, um, their culture and their ceremonies. But, of course, the Jews were never to do that. The Old Testament says you're supposed to, the life is in the blood, blood is to be poured out on the ground, and then you butcher and eat the animal from there. So once again, it's a cultural accommodation. Don't drink blood because it will make it more difficult to share Jesus with the Jews around you. So three out of four of the rulings of the Jerusalem Council with regard to these newfound Gentiles who had found Jesus all had to do with cultural accommodation so you could still effectively share Jesus with the Jewish culture. Not exercise your freedoms and preferences and raise barriers when it came to sharing the gospel with the Jewish culture. And if you think I'm wrong on this, simply go to the next verse and it makes it clear. Why do we have these four things? For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. People know the Old Testament law. Let's not create barriers to them. So, voluntarily limit our freedom to adopt the culture you are trying to reach is what Paul is talking about doing. This is exactly what James talked about doing. And we're talking about how far does this go? How serious should we take this? Now, this is going to get a lot of fun here, guys. I'm sorry. sorry, Siri. Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy was a child of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. He would have adopted the father's religious practices, at least from birth, which meant that Timothy would not have been circumcised as a child like Jewish babies were. Now, Paul knows that circumcision or uncircumcision, it does not affect a person's faith one way or other. But he knows he wants to take Timothy with him. He knows that they are going to be sharing the good news of the gospel with Jewish people. And as soon as Jewish people find out that he is an uncircumcised Gentile, they will not want to listen to Timothy anymore. Here we're going to have to, Paul says, try and accommodate the Jewish culture so we can more effectively share Jesus in the Jewish culture. Timothy I know you're a full-grown adult male, 
I know they have not invented Novocaine yet. I have a very sharp knife. Let's go in the backyard and get you circumcised. Wow. Yeah. And Timothy agrees to it. Because remember, Paul is willing to do almost anything to remove cultural barriers so we can effectively reach the lost people who need to hear about Jesus. Even to the point of Timothy agrees with it, even to the point of being circumcised as an adult male without Novocaine. You ever realize that? Now do you understand how serious it is to go after and try and remove barriers with a lost culture around us? Now let me just step out for a moment from proclamation teaching to application. I know that as a church, we've adopted a slightly new worship style, a more modern worship style. The reason we have this worship style is so we can more effectively reach the lost people around us in Spirit Lake and Spencer. That is the reason we have a more modern worship style. Some people say to me, you know, I like the worship style we had about 30 years ago. I wish we could go back. It was more comfortable to me. And I can agree with you. I understand that. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the 99 who do not need to repent. There is more joy in heaven over the one person who was lost, who was saved and brought to Jesus. Folks, if Timothy was willing to be circumcised to more effectively share the gospel with Jewish people, we should be willing to tolerate a more modern worship style to reach the lost people around us. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no way to be saved. That is why we have changed. Do you understand the reasoning behind this? The biblical basis to all of this? It continues. Paul accommodated the Gentile culture to reach the Gentiles. It is to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, by the way, I, I ditched the ceremonial law. I didn't ditch the moral law of what right and wrong is. Why? That I might win those outside the law. So when Paul was with the Gentiles, he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I have to eat everything that's kosher. Oh, I'm sorry, this is a Sabbath day, I can't do that. He just ditched all that. It would be a barrier to telling them about Jesus. So he, once again, adopts the culture he's trying to reach, to aggressively reach them, because what's more important than anything else is them meeting Jesus. Then he continues, Paul accommodated the weak to reach the weak. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Who are the weak? They're baby Christians. They're the new Christians. Christians that for them, you know, they don't have to go to the temple. They don't have to observe the Sabbaths. They don't have to observe the Jewish food laws, but they haven't matured to that point where they've realized that. So Paul doesn't come in like a ball in a china shop and start banging them around. What are you doing? You don't have to do this anymore. He just flexes. He just rolls. Just picks up where that they are. 
and just starts talking about Jesus. I don't want any other barriers between you and Jesus. Now I'm going to jump here more towards the end because of the interest of time. Some of you know that I came from a church in Michigan about 13 years ago. It was a small, rural, country church. I came right after they made a worship-style change. They had just stopped using the organ, and they had just begun using a, a band. They were sort of a really garage bandist, just trying to get things together for the very beginning. And I'll tell you that for a bunch of people in the church, they did not like the change, especially the older group who wanted the organ back and to be played every Sunday. And so I would try and talk to those people and, and listen to them. And one day I went out and I talked to one older lady in the foyer because she would actually stay outside of the worship center till the worship was over and then she'd come in for the preaching. So one Sunday after church, I just had the opportunity. It was just perfect. There she was sitting with her walker and I talked to her. I said, Carol, I said, tell me, how are you doing with these changes now that we're trying a band instead of an organ? And she said something I'd never expected. She says, I hate the music, but I love the band. I said, why? Because my grandson, my grandson is in church. My grandson and his wife, he's the one playing the bass. Do you know how long I have prayed with tears for him that he would come back to Jesus Christ when he grew up in a Christian home? That was Mike. Let me tell you about Mike. Mike had gone far from God. I mean really far from God. Long hair, covered in tattoos. This is before tattoos were fashionable. And he was covered. And by the way, he always wore long sleeves and kept them covered. Even in July. Because on his arms were naked ladies. That's how far he had gone from Christ. But Mike... He came back to church when they heard they were trying a band. He accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He got involved in the band. He started playing the bass in the band. He and his wife and young children were there. And then you know what Mike did? He started inviting his other friends to church. And they had just as much hardware in their faces and their necks and tattoos as he did. In fact, they became most of our band. One guy who was our guitarist, he had those gauges in his ears, looked like one of those African women you could practically stick three fingers through it. I mean, seriously, that big. But you know what? He met Jesus. And Carol said, I hate the worship, but I love the band. Because if we hadn't changed to reach his culture, he may never have come back to church and been saved. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 9. This is exactly what the elders are challenging us to do. Not to compromise with the culture, no. But condescend, humble ourselves to be able to adopt the things from the culture we can adopt so we can effectively reach those who are lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word.
and how your word has challenged us today about the importance of us giving up our preferences, giving up our traditions, things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but doing whatever we have to to be able to immerse ourselves in a culture that needs Jesus to be able to effectively share the good news of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I ask that this message would be received well and it would be remembered well and we may live it out in the years to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.